you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. And uh, we are going to be looking at some great stuff this morning from Luke 1. Almost too much, but I'll get it stuffed in there somehow. I want you to kind of take your mind back to the time when Jesus was walking around, or maybe even a little bit before that, I guess, right before his birth. If you remember, Solomon was the first king to build the temple, but his temple was pillaged by other kings and later on destroyed by the king of Babylon. A second temple was built by Ezra and Nehemiah and the people who lived during their times. And that temple was built during a time when Israel was poor. They were really poor. And uh, it was it was a pretty pathetic temple compared to the temple that Solomon had built. And yet, even though it was uh, a very um, oh, meager temple, it still served the purpose for 600 years. And during those 600 years, now you know what happens to a building that's been around 600 years. They fall apart. And that is exactly what happened. Well, there was a great builder just uh, during the the time of Christ's birth, and that person was Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the, the king of Judea that we learned about last week, was a wicked man, but he was probably one of the greatest builders who has ever lived. And some of the, his building accomplishments still puzzle people today as how he, he did them, but f- somehow he figured things out. And one of the things that Herod was going to rebuild or wanted to rebuild is the temple. And he came, and in 18 B.C., he approached the Jews and said, Hey, you know, your temple's looking pretty sorry. How about if I rebuild it for you? The problem was is that technically no one could rebuild the temple because you weren't really allowed to work there. When Solomon built the temple, he had every stone and every timber cut And hewn out at a different location, far enough away that you couldn't hear the workers working. Then they would bring the piece into place and set it into place. And if it didn't fit, then they'd they'd pick it up and carry it back, work on it, and come back. And they'd try and set it in. And so there was never a sound of any tools in the Temple Mount. It was always peaceful and quiet. And so here Herod wants to rebuild the temple. It's kind of like rebuilding a house in Burbank. You really can't do it. You knock down piece by piece and maybe save a little sliver of a wall and eventually rebuild everything. And that's exactly what Herod did. It took him 10 years to finish the temple itself. He rebuilt the the little mount, the, the pad that it sat on. And then he built it out of pure white stone and then overlaid much of it with gold. And... Extra biblical Jewish writing says that when you looked at it, it was just white and dazzling in appearance. It would, it was hard to even look at in the full sun. Just this beautiful, gorgeous, white, shimmering building gilded with gold. So in about 10 BC or 9 BC, he finished that part and then he went to work on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was Kind of uh, just, you know, your basic little mount there kind of tapered off into the dirt. But he expanded it a great deal. It was 500 yards from north to south. 
That's five football fields long. That's how big the Temple Mount was. 325 yards of cross. And then he built big porticos, like uh, covered areas, all along the south and along the east and the north. He built these big coverings so worshipers could come and get out of the sun. There was this huge, it was like a plateau, a man-made plateau, a big sea of perfectly hewn and polished pavers all over the surface of this gigantic temple mount. And on the, the, the west side of the temple mount, he built huge arches, stairways leading up and also from the south and gates that people could approach from all direction. Then within this giant area, there was another area which was uh, separated what was the court of the Gentiles to the, the court of the Jews. And then inside that was the very temple area which had its holy place and the holy of holies. And what you need to think about is what it would have been like for a priest to be ministering at that time. You have to think about what it was like to have all of those worshipers all around you as you go to stand before the Lord to be their mediator. Because back then, the priests were the mediator between God and men. What happened is, is there were so many priests, that about 20,000 of them, they, they estimate, there were so many priests that they couldn't all, there wasn't enough religious duties to keep them busy. And so they divided them up into divisions. We talked about this last week. And then twice a year, your division would be able to serve if you were a priest. And then they would cast lots to discover what function you would serve in within your division. And there was a very special task, a very special task that men were able to perform who were priests if they were chosen by lot. And that task was happened in the evening and in the morning at the time of the sacrifice, they would enter into the holy place and offer up prayers for the people of God and incense on the altar of incense. It was an extremely uh, rare thing because only two people a day could do it. And out of 20,000 with rotating divisions, if you were able to ever even get to serve at all, it was uh, a once in a lifetime Happening. As a matter of fact, if you were chosen, you could never do it again. You were just given that one opportunity to do this incredible thing, stand before the multitudes and offer up prayers of incense to God. Now, imagine what it would be like. You're there with your friends. You've got other priests and uh, you are all together. Walk up into the holy place. There is a big table with large discs of bread, the table of showbread. There is a there is a, an altar there of incense with a fire burning in it. There is the candle stand candlestick holder um, all made of gold and you enter into this very beautiful place with fine craftsmanship and gold and just brilliant stone and you're standing there and you're preparing to offer up incense to god and then what happens is as a little bell is rang 
And all of these worshipers, which are all, have all gathered together and all just are covering the temple mount, who are all bowing down or praying, and you can hear their murmurings just kind of constantly a rumble as they're all praying to God there. As soon as that bell is rang, it becomes pin drop quiet. And then your friends all withdraw and they leave you alone in the holy place to offer up incense to God. And so you pray, you throw the incense on the altar and the smoke comes up and it just has a real aromatic smell. It wafts out the exits of the temple and ascends to heaven and represents the prayers of God's people ascending up to heaven. That is what's happening in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter one, verse eight and follow along as I read. Now, it happened that while he, that is Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give him the name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God it is he who will go as a forerunner before him and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord what a great text And this text tells us something very important. It actually gives us five important principles about how God is working in your life for your blessing and his glory. The first of these five principles is this. God is moving you into position. Look again at verse eight. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God at the In the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, just stop right there for a second. We talked about the divisions. Here he is. He's chosen by lot to burn incense. And you might say to yourself, well, Jack, that just doesn't that just doesn't sound very spiritual. This choosing of lots, you know, here, pick a straw to see who gets to be the representative of God's people in the holy place. Well, it's really not very spiritual if you have a worldly view of things. Now, if you have a biblical view, then you know that the lot is cast into the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord. Every time you flip a coin and it lands, it's every decision is from the Lord. The Bible does not acknowledge chance. It does not acknowledge luck. Those are things invented by people who don't want to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And so it wasn't chance that put him there. It was God. God is moving Zacharias 
into position so he can use him in the way he wants to use him. And guess what? He's moving you too. He's moving you too. Pate in the Moody Gospel Commentary on Luke says, quote, the seemingly casual remark that Zechariah, and he says Zechariah because the two names are the same, Zacharias and Zechariah are one and the same name, was chosen by Lot to discharge the responsibility of offering up incense is, in fact, an indication of the providential timing and choice of God, end quote. That is exactly what's happening. God is moving this elderly priest into position. Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke tells us that this would have been the most significant day in the life of Zacharias. William Hendrickson tells us that any priest who was able to offer sacrifice were considered rich and holy the rest of their life. I mean, if you got to do this, it was so special. It was so wonderful that you are considered just a blessed man for even having the opportunity to offer up incense. And this tells us something about God. As we look in this text and we see what was happening, we see God moving a man into position so he can use him. You know, a lot of times we don't realize that God is working in our lives. And you may be thinking, well, where is he moving me? I don't know, but I know he is. Now, sometimes you know specifically that God is moving you into position. It's so obvious by circumstance or whatever, you just know he's moving you into position, don't you? I mean, you try and do one thing, and next thing you know, you're living in Burbank. And you can't help it. It's just the way it is. And you plan your way, but the Lord directs what? Your steps. That's what Proverbs 16, 9 tells us. Proverbs 20, 24 says a man's steps are ordained by the Lord. Psalm 37, 23 says the steps of um, the steps of many are established by the Lord. And Jeremiah 10, 23 reminds us, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who Walks to direct his steps. It's of God. It's of God. And you may be planning your way, but the Lord is directing your steps. And you know, sometimes when things feel like they're out of control, you need to remember they're out of your control. You see, it's not like sometimes we're in control and sometimes we're not. We're not. It's just sometimes we realize it. And see, this is what causes a lot of people fretting and anxiety and worry because they forget who is in control. I mean, some of you are thinking, oh, no, I lost my job. And God's going, yeah, of course you did. I want you to lose your job. Why? So you can learn how to trust me in the the, between time. And not only that, I want to give you another job, a worse job with less pay. So you can trust me, but there you're going to witness to a man who's going to come to the Lord and he's going to do a lot of things. I can't tell you not because it's too complicated. And then you're going to get fired from that job. And then you're going to get a job that you're so glad you got because it's better than any job you've ever had. You see, there's things like that. And God knows his ways are not our our ways. His mind is not our, our mind and his thoughts are as high as the heaven is above the earth. But you know this because he is sovereign over everything. He's working in your life now. 
to fulfill his purposes. I like what Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I like that. Or Ephesians 2.10, which says, And you are his workmanship. That's you. Created in Christ Jesus. That's you. For good works. That's you. Which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. You will walk in the good works that God prepares for you. Because even though you plan your way, God directs every detail of your life. You know, you find yourself pursuing something and you just can't do it. And you end up doing something else. You set your mind some day off. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this and that. And the whole day you end up doing something you never wanted to do in the first place. And you think, man, this is a, this day was a waste. No, it wasn't a waste. It's God's will for you. This, this day, like every other day is God's will for you. And some of you, he's going to bring trials in your life. Some of you, he's going to bring things that are hurtful relationships and job problems and sickness and all of these things are all for your good and all for his glory. And in this life of a man, Zacharias, God had a plan for him. It seemed that all of his life, he was just the average guy. And now at the very end of his life, God's moving him into the very place he had determined for him to be from all eternity. So remember, Remember, you are being moved into position by God so he can use you. Remember that out of the billions of people who are alive on the planet today, God has a specific purpose just for you that no one else can fulfill or will they fulfill. It is your calling, your purpose. And when you get to heaven, you will begin to realize how God worked all of the myriads of details in the world together for his perfect plan. Right now, we have to just believe it's true by faith. Remember, God is moving you into position. The second thing we learn from the text in verses 11 through 13 is that God answers your prayers. Look at verse 11. The text says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and standing to the right side of the altar of incense, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. Now just stop there for a second. God hasn't spoke to anybody in 400 years, but now he's choosing to speak again through an angel. The the word angel is literally messenger through this messenger who we know from The following context is Gabriel, the one who stands in the presence of God, that he is going to use this this man who seemingly is an insignificant guy. As a matter of fact, he has no children, which was a big deal back then. His wife is barren. And this is this is the whole situation here. Zacharias moves in. They ring the bell. The people get pin drop quiet. And then his buddies remove themselves from the holy holies or the holy place and he's standing there in the holy place right before the altar he takes the incense he puts it on the fire the smoke goes up he bends his bows his head he prays he looks up angel 
Now, that would be scary, you know. It's scary. My kids like to sneak up on each other and scare each other. And, uh, and it's startling when somebody appears, but it's really startling when an angel appears. And Zacharias has the common reaction to what happens when an angel appears. And what is that? He's scared big time. As a matter of fact, this word trouble means to be shaken or stirred. He's shaken or stirred emotionally. And it says fear gripped him. It really means to, to fall upon. All of a sudden, just this terror, this fear just fell upon him. And that's what happened. He, he's just, he's, he's startled. And even though he knew about angels, even though he knew exi- angels existed, I mean, what would happen if you all of a sudden had an angel appear to you? I know what would happen. The same thing that happened to Daniel. All the color would drain out of your face and you would go limp. The same thing that happened to Joseph when the angel appeared to him in the dream. The same thing that happened to Mary. The same thing that happened to the shepherds in the field. And in every case, the first thing the angel says is, do not be afraid. Why? Because when you are a sinner and you are standing in the presence of a holy angel, it's scary. And that's exactly what happens in the text. So he's gripped with fear. He's gripped with fear because these angels, which Psalm 103, 19 through 21, describes as mighty in strength, who perform God's word, obeying his voice. One of those angels is standing in his presence. So he says, don't be afraid. But then he gives them reasons why. He doesn't see, don't be afraid, just look at me. He tells them why. Look at the text. The middle of verse 13. He says, for your petition has been heard. This is the first reason why he doesn't need to be afraid, because his petition has been heard. And then commentators disagree on just what exactly his petition was. There's two good possibilities. One is, is to look at what the text says after that. It says, your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now, it seems that maybe he had prayed that Elizabeth would bear a son. And you know, that's the case. I mean, every Jew would do that, right? And, you know, probably this didn't happen that day. He had probably given up on his wife having a child, right? I mean, she was old. She was beyond the age of having a child. And it would be like this. It would be like you praying for years and years and years for something to happen. And then when it becomes an impossibility and you realize, you know, my wife isn't going to have a baby. It's over. I mean, she's, she's past childbearing age. And all of a sudden you're praying and you look up and the angel says, your petition has been answered. It's like, what petition? Your wife's going to have a baby. Really? I mean, you could imagine how amazing and joyful that would be. Why that wouldn't be something to be scared about. My wife, my elderly wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby? That's what the angel says. Your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And guess what? God has named him. His name is John. Now, it's one thing to have a neat name for your child. It's another thing to say, oh, here's my son, John. God named him. 
Now, others have guessed that what Zacharias or what the angels referring to when he says, God has heard your petition, is that when Zacharias, as the priest, was standing before the altar of incense and he offered up the incense and he was praying, he might have been praying that God would send the Redeemer, the Messiah, to redeem the people of God. And then he lifts up his head, your prayer's been answered. But we don't know. I mean, the text doesn't say. If that was the case, though, then the phrase, and your Wife Elizabeth will bear you a son is nothing more than a part of the answer to the Messiah's coming because the forerunner had to come. And so now he's telling him, guess what? Your son's going to be the forerunner. And what we learn from this is God answers prayers, right? Regardless of when he prayed the prayer, or what the prayer was, he answered his prayer. And you know what? He answers your prayers too. Now, some of you are thinking, well, are you sure I've prayed some things and he hasn't answered? Well, yes, he did. He just said no. Or he says yes. Or he says wait, which is really yes, but not yet. And God always answers your prayers. And, you know, a lot of times we forget this and we think that, you know, maybe God isn't, maybe God isn't, in the prayer answering mode anymore. Well, listen, he is. He always answers prayer. He just doesn't answer, answer it in the way that we think. And you need to be glad about that. Because if we got everything we asked for, we'd be in trouble. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, that the Father is even... He, he knows what you need before you ask. Isn't that comforting? I mean, sometimes you think, oh, I should have prayed this earlier. Well, God already knew. He's working on it before you even get there. Not only that, we know from Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, these important truths about prayer. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that comforting? Even when you mess up in your prayer, even when you don't pray according to the will of God, spirit intercedes, tweaks it a little bit, and you get exactly what you should. And so this is great. So if you pray and God says, no, that's what you need. That's his answer. His affirmative answer to you is no. No permanently or no, not right now. But God answers prayer. And that is why the scriptures say, we need to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, we need to, with thanksgiving, make our requests be made known to God. We need to thank God for all the prayers he's answered and all the prayers he will answer because he is a God who answers prayer. Third, we learn from the text in verse 14 through 17 that God gives you reasons to rejoice. Now the angel is not only giving Zacharias reasons why he doesn't need to be afraid, but he says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And just stop there for a second. Why? Why, why will he have reasons to rejoice? Why will many rejoice at the birth of this son? Well, you could say, well, it's only natural that, uh, you know, a father would be rejoicing that his wife was going to bear him a son. And there are other reasons though, aren't there? Because Elizabeth had been disgraced all of her life. 
And you know what her friends were thinking and other people are thinking, you know, she doesn't have a child. She's probably cursed. I wonder what sin it is. What sin did they commit? What, what, what is it that they're doing? There's probably some sneaky thing they've done. And we know that God opens the womb, but he hasn't opened her womb and hasn't given her a child. And so there must be something wrong with them. And all her life, she had to deal with this suspicion, this disgrace, never producing a child for her son, for her family, for her husband. None of it would have been a possibility. All the inheritance would have ended with them because they didn't have a son. But now the angel says, you are going to have a son. And that announcement just must have just run him through with joy. (gasps) A son? Elizabeth, my old barren wife, is going to have a son? Yes, she's going to have a son. Not only that, she's going to have a male child. Not only that, his name's going to be John. That's the name God has picked for your child. Not only that, he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah himself. And these are just the initial things that John learns. And this is why you, the text says, will have joy and gladness. He doesn't say you might have or maybe have. You're going to be happy. This is going to be so good for you. You are going to be so glad that God has given you this child, this specific child. And you know why else you're going to be glad? Because many are going to rejoice at his birth. There's going to be so many people who are going to be so thankful for your child. I mean, that's kind of neat, isn't it? I mean, we want people to like our child and to know beforehand from the mouth of an angel that everybody's just going to just many is going to be just rejoice at the birth of your child. That is just a great reason to rejoice. And then he goes and gives us five specific reasons why many will rejoice. It says in verse 15, if you look there, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. One commentator said, when one is great in the sight of God, one is great in reality. I mean, if God says you're great, you're great. And we know Jesus, when he was asked by the crowd about John, he said, of those born of women, there has never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Of every single man who's ever been born, he is the greatest one, greater than any king, any ruler, any godly person, Daniel, Abraham, anyone. That is something to rejoice about, to have the son who is the greatest man born of woman. And that is the first thing that we see in verse 15. Then we look down, it says, and he will drink no wine or liquor. Now, every, every Jew understood this reference. This was the reference to what was called the Nazarite. A Nazarite was one who, for a period of time from Number six would dedicate themselves to the Lord. They wouldn't drink any wine or strong drink. They would let their hair grow. And during that time, they would be, quote, dedicated to the Lord. But here the angel says, your son will basically be set apart for his whole life. And he will never, not just for a period of time, he will never drink any alcoholic beverages. And not only that. Here's another great thing. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the third thing we see a reason to rejoice while yet in his mother's womb. 
That was unprecedented. No one had the Holy Spirit all the time. In the Old Testament economy, it came upon you and indwelt you and empowered you for a time, for a task. But here, this, this man is going to be indwelt from his mother's womb. He's going to come out praising God, singing hymns. He's going to have the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. The very beginning. He will be dedicated unto the Lord. Fourth, verse 16 says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That means he will preach repentance. And fifth, verse 17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient, to the attitude of the righteous. This tells us that John will be the long awaited forerunner. That he will preach repentance, that people will turn to the Lord because of him. What greater thing could you have to rejoice about? And you know what? God gives you reasons to rejoice too, doesn't he? I mean, have you ever been kind of bummed? You know, things aren't going well and you wish you had this and you wish you had that or this isn't going well and that isn't going well. And, you know, you talk to some people and how are you doing? Well, fine. Under the circumstances. Like Howard Hendricks says, what are you doing under there? (laughs) There is never a time when you can't stop and think for just a very short moment and think of things to be thankful for. For life, for Christ, for family, for relationships, for every bite of tasty food you have ever eaten. For the trials that have caused you to grow in Christ. For jobs and friends and ministry. And that's just things that are kind of in your life right now. You can look back and there's the whole Old Testament and New Testament. You can look back at all those things to be thankful for that God has done. And you can scour the Bible and find out all the things that he will do that you can be thankful for. And it'll just totally change your whole day. Even though none of your circumstances have changed your focus. Has changed. Your mind has changed. Now you're thinking about things you should be fixing your eyes on the things above and rejoicing in the things God has done. And that's what we learn here. God gives us reasons to rejoice, just like he did Zacharias. The fourth thing we learn from this text is God fulfills his promise in verse 17. God always fulfills his promises. And when he says it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah... That is a reference to Malachi chapter four, verse six. Now turn to Malachi, turn to Malachi chapter three. We'll look at four in a minute. Last week, if you remember, we looked at Isaiah chapter 40, the prophecy of the voice crying out in the wilderness who will prepare people to see the Lord of glory himself. Now look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here is a promise. Then look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that it will not come and smite the land with a curse. God promised there would be a prophet during Isaiah's time 
some 17 generations earlier, Malachi's time, 15 generations earlier. And you would think that maybe he had forget forgotten his promise, but he didn't. And he never does. And at God's appointed time, his perfect time, 400 years later, he appears to Zacharias through an angel in the temple and says, guess what? You are going to have a son and his name's going to be John. And you know, the prophecy of Isaiah, you know, the prophecy of Malachi about the forerunner. Well, guess what? Your son is going to be the prophet, the prophet who announces the coming of the Messiah. And God always fulfills his promises. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times people forget God's promises. I talk to people sometimes who are having trials or tribulations in their lives or struggling with sins or relationship issues or whatever. I like to ask them, so, so what's God say, the word say to you about this? I don't know. No, really. I mean, what, you know, I mean, uh, what's God think about this? What's God say about this? I don't know. They can't think of one promise. They can't think of anything. And I'm telling you, if you are a person who doesn't have God's promises in your mind, your life will be miserable. Because that's our hope. That's how we get by is we have the promises of God. And when you don't, then you despair, you fret, you're worrying and anxious. Why? Because you don't have God's promises there before you to remind you of what God has said. You know, when people follow God, blessing is always the result. But if you don't keep his promises in view, in your mind, then oftentimes you despair. You're like the the characters in Pilgrim's Progress who end up getting thrown into despairing castle from giant despair who beats them mercilessly. That is the picture of a Christian who forgets God's promises. You remember that text? Many of us know it. It's in Second Peter chapter 1. Verses three and four, where Peter is reminding us of the sufficiency of God's word. And this is what he says. Let me just remind you, all of you know about this passage. If you've been a Christian for very long, he says this, seeing that his divine power, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So right there, he says, there is this true knowledge of God and that true knowledge gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Then he says this in verse four. Now listen to this for by these, what his divine power, the knowledge of him, his calling in our life by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Promises. 